In the mountains you'll find all kinds of spooky and strange things, and this episode will be no different. Welcome back to the swamp my friends and welcome if you're new. Today I'm going to be sharing some creepy and allegedly true mountain horror stories sent in by viewers just like you. As always, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or at r slash thedarkswamp on reddit. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that help keep this show going on a daily basis. Now, without further ado, let's jump into these creepy and allegedly true mountain horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. I used to work on the North Slope of Alaska by Clyde, 2003. I used to work on the North Slope of Alaska in the oil industry. The work we were doing required us to travel far out into the Alaska Petroleum Reserve, an untamed tundra wilderness for hundreds of miles. The oil companies would build these long ice roads in the winter leading to exploration drilling pads. Our job was to go out after they finished the initial drilling and test rock formations for their oil-producing qualities. It was mid-January and the sun hadn't quite come up yet. And when I say the sun hadn't quite come up, I mean it was almost a month and a half since the last sunrise. Polar nights in Alaska are intense. We traveled to the well site about 60 miles west of Alpine, Alaska. Deep in the wilderness, deep in the mountains. Our job took a week. We finished and returned to camp to finish our hitch and go home. At the beginning and the end of the ice road are guard shacks that you must check in and out of for safety reasons. There is no cell reception and radios work only up to a certain distance. If you don't check in or out in a set time, they come looking for you to ensure you're not a popsicle. It was about 4 in the morning. Not that it mattered in the land of endless night. And we were halfway across the ice road. Travel was slow as the road speed limit was only 25 miles per hour for safety purposes, when something appeared on the street in our headlights. It was a man in jeans, sneakers, and a hoodie jacket, walking down an ice road in the wilderness tundra at 4 a.m. It was negative 20 degrees outside. It is common for the local Inuit people to be out this far hunting, but walking and at this time, I don't know. Maybe his snowmobile broke down was my first thought and he's trying to get back to the guard shack. This did seem plausible. He didn't acknowledge us as our truck rolled up next to him. He just kept shuffling forward. While not appropriate for this extreme weather, he didn't seem cold. His clothing appeared warm and dry. We also noticed he wasn't Inuit, but Caucasian. I rolled down my window and asked if he need any help, and if he was okay. He still didn't acknowledge us. He just kept shuffling forward. His eyes were completely blank, devoid of any thought or emotion. The guys in my truck suggested that maybe he was in an accident and in shock. I continued rolling my truck alongside him as he trudged down the road, still trying to get his attention. Even in this extreme cold, I could occasionally get whiffs of a peculiar smell coming off of him. He almost smelled... how do I explain this? Acidic. Does that even make sense? There was just a lot about this guy that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Finally, the guy behind me in the truck's crew cab had enough of all of this. He rolled down his window, reached out to grab the guy. He later said he would try to shake him out of his stupor. Before my buddy's hand could even reach him, this walking popsicle spun around and latched onto my buddy's outstretched arm. 
He glared at my buddy and then at me with this look of pure rage, not removing his hands from his arm. If emotions had a physical temperature, this guy could have melted the entire tundra that night. My buddy groaned in pain as he tried to get his arm free from Mr. Popsicle. At that moment, this guy starts screaming in our faces. There was so much hate and rage and anger in that scream. It was terrifying. I slammed on the gas and spun out on the ice for a second before the wheels caught and launched us forward. The popsicle dude still had a hold of my buddy's arm and was trying to pull him out of the truck. He ran alongside the car while the other guys in the cab held onto my buddy to keep him inside. Several moments, it could have only been a few seconds at most, my buddy tore free from this guy and we hauled ass to the guard shack another 30 miles down the road. We checked in with the guards and reported what we had just encountered. The guard looked at us like we were pulling a prank, but the police had to check it out nonetheless due to protocol. My buddy's arm was sore, and when he pulled his sleeve back, there were noticeable bruises in the shape of a hand around his arm. We filed the report with the guard and we were told to return to our camp. None of us ever wanted to talk about what happened, and the rest of the way there was very quiet. We flew home the next day. The next time we saw the guard at his shack, we asked him if he ever saw Mr. Popsicle on his patrols. He told us they searched up and down the icy road for a solid 12-hour shift and saw absolutely nothing or anyone. Not even tracks, in the snow, leading off the road. He told us it was a good prank and that he'd get us back for making him waste a shift driving around. But it wasn't a prank. Who would make up a story like that? And who would willingly bruise their arm for a dumb joke? We have yet to get a satisfying answer to what actually happened to us that evening. I still wonder about that dude, if he even was a dude at all. The Alaskan Tundra is a weird place. That was just one of the many odd stories from my time there. The Military is Hiding a Horrible Secret by V.O.N. This story isn't necessarily scary, but it is entirely strange. Something happened to those soldiers. From 2011 to 2012, I was in the army deployed to Afghanistan as a crew chief on Chinook helicopters. We were stationed at a more extensive base with an airstrip called Jalalabad. Most of our job for the year was building up a forward operating base. These are larger bases where you would have a battalion or sometimes a company of troops building up outposts or OPs. An outpost would have a squad or two of troops, sometimes a platoon, to pull over and watch over the FOB. We were dropping infantry guys to kick in doors looking for Taliban in an area called the Konar River Valley. There are mountains all around this area. One night, we were resupplying a few fobs when suddenly we had a call over the radio to abort the mission we were on and head back to the forward operating base known as Shah. When we landed there, we powered down and were met by these special forces. They briefed the pilots on what we were doing in this area, and then the pilot told us. The furthest forward operating base in our area had lost contact with an OP. This place was out in the middle of nowhere near the Pakistan border, monitoring Taliban coming across. Due to the terrain of Afghanistan, with mountains being all over the place, the location of bases could be better but are rather scattered. The flat parts to build on are at the bottom of mountain ranges and hills, meaning the enemy can stand on the mountainside, look into the base and see everything, and have the advantage of higher ground. So this particular forward operating base was at a real disadvantage, and to mitigate some of the risk, they had four OPs on the mountainside overlooking the valley called the Four Horsemen. 
OP Mustang had radioed in. They were under attack and then radios went silent. The OP was on the other side of the ridge so it could not be seen from the main FOB and with the mountainous terrain and darkness it would take 12 hours on foot to make it to them at the very least. The SF guys had been in the area pulling missions so the higher ups would send them in. We had about two Chinooks loaded up to the gills with about 30 on my bird and the other was to land at the FOB below Mustang and wait. When we got about two miles out, we radioed them, and it was still silence. When we could see the OP in the distance, it was absolutely dark. This was around midnight, and it was pitch black outside. Under NVGs, or night vision goggles as most would know them as, you can see the dimmest light, and there was absolutely nothing. We circled overhead about 150 feet trying to see anything we could. Finally, the SF commander came over the radio and told the pilots to put us down on the OP. I was at the main cabin door, guiding the pilot down about 50 feet. I make out something, but I can't quite tell what it is. Then, at around 15 feet, it dawns on me that it's a human leg. I go over the radio. Sir, we have a leg on the LZ. Pilot goes. The SF commander says to put the bird on the ground now. We landed and the ramp got dropped. The SF dudes ran off the back and formed a perimeter. At this time, the door gunner on my opposite side goes, We have a head over here. I am still in shock from seeing the leg. I am at the cabin door screaming, the OP, and realizing the body parts are everywhere. Torsos with no arms and legs. Heads that looked like they were stepped on and smashed. I told myself I couldn't believe a grenade or an IED would cause the damage I was seeing right before my eyes. There was no damage to any of the OP. The walls were intact and the ground was regular. If the bodies weren't all over the place, it would have looked normal. Eventually, I saw about 10 SF guys after they ensured the LZ was clear, run off and started checking the OP out. On the OP's far side, the medic pulls out a body bag and I see them moving something and loading it into the bag. They were struggling hard to do whatever they were doing. Then they tried to bring it back to the bird, but they were having a very tough time. I see them move over to the other guys pulling the perimeter. Four or more guys run over there and start helping. It looks to be 14 guys carrying this bag. They loaded it into the back of the bird. The bag was 10 to 12 feet long and completely filled. At this point, a bunch of guys got back off. They were leaving six guys on board with this body bag. These six guys wouldn't let us join them. The crew came near them to inspect what we were transporting, and we were told to take off and trade spots with the second Chinook. A Chinook is a cargo helicopter designed to lift a lot of weight. The heavier the load, you can hear a change in the engines and feel the aircraft. When we took off, the strain the engines were under was very defined. Whatever was in the bag was very heavy, so we landed where they were and waited for them to do whatever they had to do. My buddy was in the other bird and said the SF guys collected all the body parts and loaded them on the bird. After the birds were loaded, we refueled and headed to the Bagram field. We go to Bagram occasionally and always land in the same area. This time we landed at a different spot next to a C-130. They brought in a forklift, which barely moved what was in the bag. Immediately it was loaded into the C-130 and all the body bags were full of parts. The only thing said to us by the SF commander was you can go now. After that we returned to the base. The flight home was in silence outside of the essential conversation. We never really talked about what we thought it was or what happened, but you could tell everyone knew what we saw that night was unexpected. Since then I have heard a few stories about the giants of Afghanistan. Is that what killed all those soldiers of OP Mustang? The Resting Biker 
by Mark Toaster. When I was younger, my parents took the whole family to a small Colorado town to vacation. We loved the atmosphere of small towns and wide open mountain ranges. This place was our regular travel spot. Now when I say small, I mean that this town was home to about 300 people. It started as a mining town in the late 1800s and the families of those miners generally stuck around, and their descendants still inhabit the city to this day. So everybody knows everybody in this town, and people knew my family because we were regular visitors and owned a few acres of land on the edge of the city. I can't recall one vacation in particular, it was around the start of winter, so my parents had taken my brother and me there on one of our school breaks. My grandparents came to join us and I remember having a great time going on walks with the whole family and playing with the new toys my grandparents had gotten me for the vacation. One of the toys they had gotten me was a remote control ATV with a toy man sitting on top of it wearing a helmet and a biker jacket. The toy is why this memory stands out to me because I loved it so much. For reasons you'll soon understand, this memory is burned into my brain. On that vacation, we walked around the less populated parts of town, because this town that seemed to come up out of nowhere in the middle of the mountains, there were plenty of walking trails, scenic routes to explore, and I would always take walks with my family when we visited. One of my favorite routes included a bridge that overlooked a steep valley, and the scenery looking off the bridge was absolutely to die for. When we got to that point in the walk where we would approach the bridge, a man was sitting with his back resting against the bridge's guardrails. Now, remember that toy I mentioned earlier? This man wore a helmet and a biker jacket, exactly like my toy. I remember thinking it was cool when I said something to him like, You look just like my toy. Immediately, my mom said something to the effect of, Oh, honey, don't bother that man. He's tired and needs to rest. Now, being young, I didn't really think much of it because I was a very talkative kid and I used to pretty much talk anybody's ear off who would let me. My dad chimed in saying he knew this guy and would stop to talk to him for a bit. He told us that we should all go on the walk and he would catch up to us later after talking to the guy. I didn't think much of this because as I said, everybody knows everybody in this small town. My mom grabbed my brother by the hand and dragged us past the man and onto the rest of the walk. I thought something felt off because it seemed like my mom was in a hurry for no real reason. I asked her who that man was and my mom just told me it was a friend of my dad's and that he'll be back soon. I quickly put the whole thing out of my mind and enjoyed the rest of our walk. Only my dad met back up with us at the cabin we were staying at and I didn't really think about it again until this moment. I asked my dad who the man was and he told me about how it was just an old friend who lived here and that he never talked about it again after that really. I could never really get him to open up very much. But here we are now. Nearly two decades later, and this memory pops into my mind today when I see a kid in my apartment complex playing with a similar toy to the one my grandparents had given me all those years ago. I remembered those friendly vacations and how much I enjoyed looking off into the vast space of the mountains and valleys. I remember playing with that toy ATV in the backyard of the vacation cabin, showing my grandparents all the fabulous tricks I could do with it. And I also remembered that man on the bridge and how my mom was in such a hurry to get away from him. And how my dad stayed back to talk to the guy. Suddenly that memory didn't quite feel right. Something just felt wrong about it. I kept thinking about it through the rest of this morning. Wondering why my mom insisted that we move on. Wondering how my dad could have recognized the man when a helmet completely covered his face. I texted my dad asking him, Hey, do you remember when we were on vacation in Colorado and you ran into one of your friends sitting on the bridge we were walking on? 
It suddenly popped into my head and I remembered it being a weird situation. What happened there? At this point, I was confident I knew the answer to that question. I just got off the phone with my dad about an hour ago. He called after seeing my text. He said he didn't think that I even remembered that happening, but that he thinks about it all the time and that he often worried about whether my brother and I understood what was going on. He explained the entire thing to me, and my suspicions were confirmed. While taking one of our usual walks, we came up to the bridge, and my parents saw that man sitting there leaning against the bridge, or to put it more accurately, that man's body. My parents were alarmed when I immediately tried to talk to the body about my new toy, so my dad quickly came up with the idea that he knew the guy and would meet us later because he wanted to talk to the man. In reality, my dad had never met the man before in his life. He just wanted to check out to see if the man still had a pulse and call 911 about the situation. This next part made my dad feel highly uncomfortable, making him feel queasy about it today. He did not want my brother or me to understand what was happening, so to conceal the fact that this man was probably no longer alive, he sat down next to the body and started talking to it. He had to sit right next to this man's body and carry a one-side conversation until we were out of earshot, and I can't imagine how weird that must have been for him. At this point, he checked the man's pulse and confirmed that he was unfortunately dead. The resting biker would be sleeping forever. This was before the age of cell phones. They weren't very ubiquitous at the time, and even then, there would have been no way to get a signal in an isolated town like this. He ran back to town, called the county sheriff from a landline, and returned to the bridge to wait for them to arrive. While my dad was waiting there, he looked around to figure out what had happened, and it wasn't very hard to tell. The bridge had started to get icy because it was the start of winter, and this man must have been taking the curve to the bridge a little too quickly. My dad looked over to the edge of the bridge, and sure enough, there was a motorcycle at the bottom of the valley. The man had crashed, probably been injured very badly, and propped himself up hoping that help would arrive. My family did come across him, but not soon enough. Looking back on it, we never took that walking path again in all the times we vacationed there in the future. My dad wanted to avoid it because the memory of having to talk to a body and pretend it was alive made him feel sick to his stomach, and he didn't want my brother or I to remember the situation and figure out what happened. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true mountain horror stories sent in by viewers just like you. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to hit that like button as it helps me out a ton. If you're new, be sure to subscribe, it helps the swamp grow. If you have a story from the great outdoors that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or r slash thedarkswamp on reddit. I'd love to know in the comments down below what story tonight was your favorite. It helps me pick out better stories in the future and it's always nice to see what stories you're enjoying. If you're on the go but still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you find your favorite podcast online absolutely free. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcast, I'd really appreciate you giving the show a 5-star rating on those platforms as it helps us grow over there and is very helpful. Thank you guys as always for supporting the Swamp for another year here in 2023. Can't wait to see what stories we can bring you this year, and I'll see you soon with another creepy episode.